It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us today on the line of fire. Michael Brown here, not taking your calls today, but answering questions posted on social media as we seek to do from time to time, opening our phones most every day of the week, but then doing our best to get to your questions as well that are posted on social media. I'm just looking at some of them. It's amazing after being on live radio daily for more than 10 years after doing countless shows, hundreds of shows of answering questions and sitting with students for decades and answering their questions and being in all kinds of other settings where I get to answer questions. It's amazing that new questions constantly are asked and questions often I've never thought of. So we will have a learning experience together today on the line of fire. So let's see here. We'll start over on Twitter. Jeff, Jesus told us to love our enemies, but does he, God, hate the devil? Ah, I like the question. In other words, is is God asking us to do something he doesn't do? Well, right there is the answer to the question because we're not God. Our emotions are not perfect. Our attitudes are not perfect. Our sense of justice is not perfect. Our love is not flawless, whereas everything in God is perfect. Perfect justice, perfect love, perfect mercy, perfect purity, perfect wrath, all perfect. If if there is what we would call a jealousy or a holy zeal, it is is perfect. Whereas our emotions are are corrupt in one way or another. They They are not perfectly expressed or they can't be held in perfect contrast all at the same time. So God will command us to do things following his example. But he also gives life and takes life in a way beyond what we have the right to do because he is the perfect judge. Now, having said that, we're not commanded to love the devil. We're not commanded to to love the devil. We're commanded to love our earthly enemies. And in fact, God does love his earthly enemies. How much? He sent his son to die for them. The ultimate expression of God's love. What does it say in Romans 5? While we were yet godless, while we were still enemies, while we were hostile, Colossians 1, we were hostile in our mind, Ephesians 2, by nature, objects of wrath. When we were dead set opposed to God, when there was nothing in our sinful nature that pleased him at all, God sent his son Jesus to die for us. So we were his enemies. That's all there were on the earth was enemies, right? We none of us were were in wholehearted relationship with God the way we needed to be through the cross, and there were outright wicked people doing wicked, ugly, blasphemous, terrible things. Jesus died for those people. That was us. That was us. Some of us more overtly wicked than others. All right. So God loves His enemies and hates the devil. We love our enemies and hate the devil. But there is a quality of what God does and there are actions that belong only to him because he's God and we're not because he's perfect and we're not. So our enemies talking about our earthly enemies, 
I don't have to love the devil. I, he can't be redeemed. I have to love demons. They can't be redeemed. But human beings can be redeemed. There's, there's a difference there. And we overcome evil with good. Here's a related question from Brian. Jesus said to love your enemies. How is a person supposed to have feelings of love for someone who kidnapped, raped, and tortured her for 17 days? Right, let's, let's take some time to talk this through because this is not some light thing where we want to throw around some cheap theological answer. First, let's, let's go back over to the words of Jesus. Let's see what he actually says. We'll go to Matthew chapter five. and We have a parallel in Luke, the sixth chapter as well. And let's look at what Jesus says here. Matthew chapter five. He's exhorting us to follow the example of his father, ultimately, who causes his rain to come on the just and the unjust, causes this shot, his son to shine on the wicked and the righteous. And he says this, verse 42, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So he's, he's talking about going above and beyond what's required. He's talking about in, in, in say under the law that you could lend money and uh, you'd expect it back at a certain time. Well, what, what if it was coming to the year of release, you'd lend money and the person doesn't have to pay you back. Well, lend anyway, give anyway. Then, next section, you've heard that it was said, love your, en- love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? But even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you going to do out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, to answer Brian's question here, uh, let's remember that Jesus also calls us to forgive those who sin against us as he has forgiven us. I've been reading a book written by the mother of the young man who committed one of the most horrific crimes in modern history, namely slaughtering in cold blood Amish girls, innocent young girls in the Amish community. And he, he worked in that community. His family lived in that community. Whatever happened, whatever drove him to do it, he did. It's, it's mysterious. I mean, he was battling certain things on the inside that nobody knew about. His parents didn't know about. His wife didn't know about. His brothers didn't know about. Nobody knew about. Otherwise, he was thought to be a very, very kind, loving, caring father, husband, and citizen of the community. But immediately after the horrific deaths, I, I mean, just in cold blood, tying the girls up and, and shooting them in the head and five or six terribly wounded, six killed. And immediately the Amish community began going to the house of the mother and father because they were just weeping and grieving and beside themselves. That's their son. And what did they do? How did they miss these things in his life? I mean, just who can, who can imagine that? And they, they came over to the house to express forgiveness and to say, we're praying for you. We're praying for you. People who lost their families, grandchildren, children, reached out to them to say, we just want you to know we've forgiven your son for what he's done. It was mind boggling. And when some people asked one of the Amish men, you know, how could you do that? And, and he, he said, well, what's worse to have your child killed or, or, or to, to have your child be the one who does the killing? 
In other words, these, these people are experiencing a, a terrible loss as well. The parents of the murderer, their life has just been upended as well. And of course, the young man took his own life as well. And, and the Amish said, it's a choice we make. It's a choice we make. I have seen in court testimonies where parents have gotten up and said to the murderer, you need to go to jail. It's right you go to jail, but we forgive you and are praying for you to know the Lord. And I look from the outside and think, how, 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 how is that possible? It's possible because God gives supernatural grace to those in those situations. It's possible because God enables us. It's possible because he reminds us of how deeply he forgave us, of how undeserved our forgiveness was, of the massive debt that we owe to him. He not only forgave it, he put it on his son, his son paid for it. And then he welcomed us into his home. I, I read an account many, many years ago of a Korean pastor whose son was murdered by, a, a, I believe it was an atheistic young man. And he knew the judge in the court and he made an unusual request. Could the court turn the young man over to him so that he could lead him to the Lord and disciple him? And, and he adopted that. Somehow it happened. He adopted that murderer as his own son. And he became a son to him and a lover of the Lord. It, it's supernatural. It takes supernatural grace. And it doesn't mean you have to have a, a feeling of like, oh, I feel so warm towards that person. But you have to realize that sinful human beings do all kinds of horrific things that there we go, but by the grace of God. That's one thing I'm sure of. I, I can't, can I imagine kidnapping someone, torturing them, rape? No, I can't imagine that anymore. And you can. But I am quite sure that outside of God's grace, I could do the ugliest things and you could do the ugliest things. So we're beholden to his grace. And because of that, the first thing we do is we choose to forgive. And it makes us vulnerable in a certain sense, but we first choose to forgive. And then we say, God, I'm going to choose to love that person, meaning I'm going to pray for their salvation. I'm going to pray for their deliverance. Yes, they deserve to be in prison. No, I don't want them to hurt anyone else. Uh, if I was around that person, no, I wouldn't go out for a meal alone with them. No, none of the above. But I genuinely want them to receive help and life. I would much rather see them come to know the Lord and be forgiven and go to heaven than to, to die in sin and perish and go to hell. As God had mercy on us, he gives us the grace to have mercy on others. Uh, I, I remember hearing a baptismal testimony of a young woman during the Brownsboro Revival. She testified as to how she had been abused by either one man or a number of men over a period of years when, when she was younger. And if I remember, I mean, I, I think she could have been older than an older teenager, or maybe in her 20s. She'd been abused when she was much younger and she developed an extreme hatred from men, understandably. And then she got wonderfully saved, wonderfully born again. And she said, I want to take as many of these men to heaven with me as I can. I want to see them redeemed. I want to see them saved. It's supernatural. It's something that God does. But if he commands it, just like he commands us to believe, he commands us, just like he commands a cripple to get up and walk. It is something that we can only do by faith with his grace, but with him, 
all things are possible. And, and I, uh, I'm just reading another testimony recently, another extraordinary testimony of forgiveness. You think, how could someone ever forgive someone for doing what they did? And yet that person said, God had great mercy on me. I want to have mercy on you. Yes, justice is justice. And certain people need to be off the streets. And yes, it's right to say you need to pay for what you did. That's, that's only right and it's only just. And, and, and we stand with the courts for that. But we don't desire to see your destruction. We desire to see your salvation. That's what grace does. You know, on a, move this over now, a million miles over here. A lot of people say to me, Dr. Brown, how can we be so gracious towards those who differ with you? Again, I'm not comparing the two scenarios. And I tell them, God's very gracious with me. <laughs> I want to extend that same graciousness that he's given to me. I want to extend it to many others as well. All right, back with more of your social media questions. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us today on The Line of Fire. Not opening the phone lines, but I am answering your social media questions. Hey, our ministry is asked, Dr. Brown. We do as many shows as we can answering your questions. And I start every class with my students. We sit down. I said, all right, any questions? Or if I'm standing, depending on the number of students, any questions about anything? And oh, trust me, it gets all kinds of random and interesting, but always, always useful, always fruitful, always edifying. Let me answer some more of your Twitter questions. Um, Duke asks, what did the Israelites do that made the Egyptians fear them? Well, Remember that they were a substantial and growing minority in Egypt. And as their numbers grew, they were outpacing the Egyptians, that they were becoming a more and more significant minority. And they were oppressed as slaves. They had originally come as guests, but now they were oppressed as slaves and they were really suffering. So slaves want their freedom. Slaves do not want to be forever oppressed. Now they're rapidly growing because God's blessing is on them. They're being fruitful and multiplying as we see in Exodus, the first chapter. So the leaders of Egypt get concerned, you know, if there are too many of them, then they're going to revolt against us. There are too many of them, you know, they're multiplying like rabbits and, and, and soon enough, they're going to be too many for us to keep down and they're going to revolt. So we lose our, we lose our slaves. That's, that's, we're going to have to do the work that they're doing or enslave somebody else. So that was, that was a real threat. God was with them. And there was obviously a sense of that, of, of blessing that the Egyptians saw and that scared them. And then as they multiplied in numbers, that growth scared the Egyptians all the more. Now, there's another angle. There's another potential angle here. <clears throat> I am not an expert on Egyptian chronology. And I'm not dogmatic about issues having to do with the dating of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan and things like that. But there are some scholars who believe that there, uh, during this time that is recorded in, in Exodus, the first few chapters, that the Egyptians were also ruled by outsiders, the Hyksos dynasty. Now, some are going to dispute this, but let me just throw out one theory that I've read from some scholars. These people themselves were our minority. 
They were Semitic speaking people. The Egyptians are Hamitic. They're related. Okay. But, but different. So they were Semitic speaking people. They themselves were our minority in Egypt. So if the Israelites grew, they could, this one growing minority could overthrow this other minority. But that may be reading too much into the text. There, there are other reasons scholars have suggested that as well. But bottom line, they were just growing rapidly. And here, I'll give you a contemporary example. You look in Europe, for example, where there has been an influx of Islamic immigrants from Africa, from Asia, from the Middle East. So there's been this influx into, uh, into Germany, into France, into Sweden, into other countries. And many of them are continuing to have a, a much higher birth rate than the population around them, England, etc. So now this minority is getting bigger and bigger, more and more numerous, getting more and more powerful. And you might think, well, they're going to take over our country soon. They're going to obliterate our culture soon. And that's some of the concern that's taking place in Europe. Rather than the, the Muslims coming in, just being integrated into the society and becoming part of it, they want Sharia law in certain places and, and they want certain rights. And, and it's starting to push back against the rights and freedoms of the Europeans or the cultural identity and on and on. So it's, it's kind of a similar situation to that. All right, again, not taking your calls. Derek is wondering more about miracles. I wish I knew a little bit more about what you're saying, more about miracles. Here's what I posted. Friends, I'm recording some special shows to air later this week. So if you post some good Twitter questions now, all subjects welcome. I'll do my best to get to them on the air this week, possibly as early as tomorrow. Go for it. That's what I posted early in the week. So more about miracles. What more? Well, let's, let me say a few things. All right. Miracles in the Bible have several purposes. And we're talking about true miracles, divine miracles, not counterfeit. One is to draw attention to the one true God, to show that he is really God, to show that, that he alone is God, that he rules over nature, that he rules over the gods of, of the other nations, that he is the all-powerful. It's also to back God's servants to say, I'm with you. Here's my miraculous confirmation. I'm with you. And then miracles are also acts of divine compassion. They also reflect the nature of God. They manifest his goodness. They manifest his power. They manifest his holiness. They manifest his justice. There are different aspects of miracles, depending on what they are, that demonstrate different aspects of his character. So we can learn much about the character of God looking at the miracles of Jesus, for example. So that's the purpose of miracles in scripture. Again, pointing to the one true God, confirming God's servants and the message they bring, and demonstrating aspects of the character of God. Miracles by nature by definition, do not happen all the time in every circumstance. Otherwise, they'd no longer be miraculous. They'd no longer be signs. They'd no longer be wonders in, in that respect. They would just be like, here, my illustration again, <laughs> just dropping something, boom, it drops. That's just, that's not a miracle. That's, that's the law of gravity. We call it a miracle if I went to drop it and it just stayed suspended in the air with our gravity here, that would be miraculous. If I said the Lord's going to demonstrate his power by causing my chair to rise up in the room and spin around the room, that'd be miraculous. Although that would be kind of a the type of abstract demonstration of power that you don't normally see in scripture. In any case, miracles do happen on a constant basis around the world, but they happen as an exception to the rule. Meaning your average sick person is not miraculously healed. Your average dead person is not raised from the dead. 
your your average starving person does not receive supernatural provision. I don't say these things lightly as we talk about sickness and starvation. I'm just saying that normally there is not supernatural divine intervention in every single case. Otherwise, nobody would ever be sick. Everybody would constantly be raised from the dead. No one would ever starve. However, because there are over seven and a half billion people on the planet, whatever the number is exactly, and because there are so many needs, miracles happen all the time. And if you want a major study on it, Craig Keener's two-volume study, Miracles. If you want a great one book, shorter book, very readable, get Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Miracles. All right, let's see. Andrew, to what extent does pride in ministry hinder the gospel in terms of outreach to the lost? Well, pride hinders everything, sir. Pride, pride is always a snare. Pride is always negative. Pride is always problematic. Pride always blunts our effectiveness, hurts our ability to really serve others. So how would it specifically hinder the gospel in terms of outreach to the lost? Well, my uh, initial immediate thoughts would be, I'm not going to reach out to those people. They're too, they're, they're too lowly. I'm, I'm like aristocratic. I'm well-educated. I'm rich. I'm famous. I'm whatever. I'm too big. I'm anointed. I'm powerful. I've got a prosperous church. Whatever the prideful thoughts are, I'm not going to reach those homeless people. Smell like vomit. I'm not going to do that. I'm not, what? I'm going to leave America and go to Africa? Oh, jungles of Africa. Oh, yeah, me? I was sleeping on some cot somewhere with, with, with a mosquito net over me to keep the bugs away? I'm going to do that. I got a PhD from Harvard University. I'm, I'm going to go minister to people that can't even read and write. I'm going to do that. These would be prideful attitudes. Maybe a more subtle one would be, I'm, I'm too busy. I have other things that are more important to do. Uh, yeah, I, I know my neighbor doesn't know the Lord, but you know it's just much more important that I finish writing my world-changing book. Or it's, it's much more important that I finish preparing my world-changing sermon than, than reach my... Yeah, I, I, know the, I know the neighbor's in need. I understand that. And they said they want to talk to me about the Lord, but I, mean, I could finish the sermon and reach a million people. Whereas my neighbor's just one. So that could be a prideful thought as well. So I hope that's helpful. And let's see, I've got time for one more before the break. Richard, how do you withdraw your peace from a household? Like the disciples were told to Matthew 10, 13. Also, what's a sacred kiss? So a sacred kiss, just answer that first. Be like a holy handshake. In many parts of the world, you greet someone, men greet men by kissing on either cheek. Women kiss on either cheek, you know, both cheeks, I should say. Uh, so when you do it, I, I've been at services in Italy and at the end of the service, maybe in Sicily, where it's a little more traditional, there's a long line of people waiting there. I'm thinking, oh, they don't want to, they want prayer. Or they want to talk to me through a translator and it's late. No, they, they just want to greet me. Pache, fratello. Peace, brother. And they're going to kiss me on each cheek. The brothers will do that to the brothers and the sisters to the sisters. So that's what it is. It's not a particular kind of kiss, whatever the, when, when you would greet someone in the ancient world with a kiss, when believers did it, it was a holy kiss. So it's not a sensual kiss or a sexual kiss, but rather a kiss of greeting, which is common in many parts of the world to this day. Uh, you know, we could say a holy hug now, you know, where brother, you grab the brother, hey, good to see you, hug each other and sisters, of course, got to be the proper way, you know, men and women and, men and all that. But holy, holy hugs be the same thing. So how do you withdraw your peace from a household like the disciples were told to? So what it would mean is this, you're going out to share the gospel and you start knocking on doors in the community. Hey, um, we'd like to talk to you about the Lord and do you have any questions? Get out of here. 
you jerk. Get out. I don't want to talk to you. Get out of here. Okay, you were ready to bless them. You were ready to, 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 to spend time with them, to have a meal with them, to share the gospel with them, to bring life to them, but they want nothing to do with you. So you withdraw your peace, meaning, okay, I, I was ready to bless you. I was ready to, to do good for you, but you don't want to let me in the door. And you go to the next house. Hey, we're here. If you have any questions about God, need prayer for anything, we'd love to, to, to help you. Oh, yeah, please come in. So now you, you bless them in the name of the Lord, and, and you bring your blessing of peace with them and for them. And you can do that, whereas in the other household, you can't. This is not just talking about, well, I, don't, I don't like, we're having a bad day, and, and I disagree with you, so I'm going to draw my peace. This is not some petty thing you do. This is especially in the context of going out into new communities, sharing the gospel. All right, we've got time for a bunch more questions, so we're going to keep going with your social media questions today on The Line of Fire. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on today's Line of Fire broadcast. Michael Brown, delighted as always to be with you, but not taking your calls today, just answering questions that have been posted on Facebook and on Twitter. So you've got questions, we've got answers. That's what we're doing today. Hey, before we get into that, I just want to make an appeal to you from the heart. We do everything we can to bless you for free. So we come your way on radio. We come your way on internet. I write maybe five new articles a week. Yeah, it takes time to do this, which we post for free. Anyone can download our podcast, watch our entire YouTube broadcast of every show. There's no subscription fee to do that. We have thousands of hours of free resources, debates, different teachings, whole, whole classes we've done. We have so much online. Yeah, we, we do have things in our store as well, but, but we have thousands of hours of free resources for you. And you might just think, well, somebody's paying for it. Well, actually, we need your help to be able to continue to broadcast on the air and continue to post these things and continue to write and pour things out to serve you, to serve you. So could you help us with a one-time gift of any size, whether it's $10 or $1,000, whether it's $5 or $50,000, every dollar will be used to help us preach the gospel. And friends, I'm getting ready for my annual India trip. It's a time when we bring in no income. Uh, we go there to pour into our friends in India 26 straight years now. So long trip and, and no funds coming in while there or immediately after when we, when we get back and can't travel out immediately again. So we could really use your help. You say, well, what can I do? If everybody does what they can, then every one of our needs will be met and you'll be blessed as you give. What does it say in Luke 6, 38? Give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will men given to your bosom for the same measure you use, be measured back to you. So give as you're able, help us if we support and strengthen and minister to you on a regular basis, we would really appreciate your gift. We're not your local congregation. We're not asking for your tithe, but we are asking you to stand with us and help us. So thank you, those that have helped us through the years. Thank you, all of our monthly supporters, our torchbearers, and please do stand with us today. Would you do that? Go to askdrbrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Click on donate. And once more, 
Thank you. Thank you for your solidarity and support. Key time of the year for us. It would really lift some burden. So thank you once more. All right. Questions asked on Facebook. Uh, Cody, I'd like to ask about the different accounts of how the disciples began to follow Jesus. John's gospel being different than the synoptics, also in leaving out the temptation of Christ after his baptism. Yeah, so here's what's interesting. If all four gospels told the same story in the same way, with the same accounts and the same teaching, you wonder, why do we need four gospels, right? When they tell things from different angles and different ones emphasize different points and different ones include certain teachings and exclude others, and put certain things in, it. in one order, one is chronological, and, and one maybe follows more along a, an ideological uh, sequence. When they're different, we say, why are they different? Well, they're different because the different authors inspired by God each had a specific job to do. For example, Matthew's gospel is really focused on showing that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish people. Scholars have even recognized a five-fold division in the book the way it's laid out. And Matthew constantly saying, constantly saying this happened to fulfill what was written. That, that's his particular mission. Mark is explaining things to Gentiles about Jewish customs, for example, in Mark 7, because he's presuming an audience that, that is largely non-Jewish. John, probably the, the latest written of all the Gospels, is reflecting on things from a much more theological viewpoint and having uh, extended discourses from Yeshua that none of the other authors do. So they're, they're each bringing their own emphasis. But some of them will, will just give the account, say there were two demoniacs in Matthew 8, and Mark 5 will focus on the prominent one. Matthew 8 mentions a prominent one and the secondary one. Mark 5 just spotlights the prominent one. Michael Lacona has talked about that in terms of ancient biographies and, and how they would work in the ancient world. And, and just like you have actors on a stage, but the spotlight's put on one. So sometimes the gospel authors will spotlight one and and others are like, okay, that's already been told. I don't need to tell that again. We, we already have that account here. I don't need to repeat that. So some will draw on similar material and then bring out different points of emphasis. Others like John will go in a very different direction, but that's what gives us a better picture of who Jesus is, being so transcendent, being so indescribable in human terms. This way we get a better understanding of who he is. A Catherine does the Jewish faith allow same-sex marriage as Chuck Schumer's daughter just participated in? If you are a traditional Jew, if you are a religious Jew, a traditional Jew, no, no, absolutely not. This is anathema. God made men for women and women for men. And same-sex practice is detestable. Even if the people can be loved and we should have compassion to those who struggle with these desires, uh, it is absolutely, totally forbidden in traditional Judaism. However, if you are a liberal Jew, so a conservative Jew is actually liberal in social issues or reformed Jew, even more liberal, then you have no problem with same-sex, quote, marriage, and you might even ordain same-sex clergy with no problem. So here's a woman, quote, married to her partner, and she's a rabbi, no problem in reformed Judaism, and something conservative Judaism has opened up to, but something absolutely uh, anathema in traditional Judaism. It's the same with, with conservative Christians, that they would say absolutely no to same-sex, quote, marriage, whereas liberal Christians say, hey, love is love. Same parallel there. Um, Joshua, well, I've been thinking about when did incest become a sin before or after the giving of the Mosaic law? All right, so obviously, right at the beginning, 
when Adam and Eve first had their children, it had to be a son or daughter of Adam and Eve having sexual relations with a son or daughter of Adam and Eve. Those are the human beings on the planet. Uh, and then as the human race begins to, to grow and diversify, then that practice would obviously not be needed anymore. We know that Abraham married a half-sister. We know, so same mother, different father. We know that Jacob married two sisters. We know, for example, that marrying two sisters, now he didn't intend to do that, that's what happened. We know that that's forbidden in Leviticus 18. So the question is, were these things forbidden culturally before the giving the Mosaic law? There's no record of it. There's no record of it. So we, we know, and look, there are many things that were not forbidden before the law was given. Paul writes about it in Romans 4, that they may have still been wrong. They may have been sinful in God's sight. Yes, but they, they weren't, there was a law that they were breaking. Just like if there's no law about driving too fast, it's dangerous to go 120 miles down the road, right? It's dangerous to do that. But unless there's a law against it, it's not illegal. So when did these things become illegal in God's sight, it was at the point that the Mosaic law was given. Now, that, that we can say for sure. What we do know in Leviticus 18, which is mainly about incest, God says he judged the Canaanites for practicing these things. So somehow there must have been some notion written in the hearts of man or some revelation at some point whereby there was a consciousness that this was wrong and people were doing vile things anyway but it's not actually written out until you get to passages like Leviticus 18. Uh, okay, Petra. Uh, in the parable of the 10 virgins, five wise, five unwise, who do they represent? It's not the bride of Christ who is the bridegroom, who is with the bridegroom, so who are the 10 virgins? They can't be the church, right? Ah, Petra, the key thing is that when we read these parables, we're reading them to learn a lesson. We're reading them for the larger point. So yes, the, the Jewish wedding tradition would be that the bridesmaids would go out to meet the bridegroom who would then come to the bride's home to take the woman for himself. All right. So in this case, the bridesmaids are not the wife. Some think that this actually supports polygamy. But they're not, they were not all brides. They were bridesmaids. Okay. In this case. But they certainly represent the church spiritually in that it's talking about readiness when he returns, being wholehearted, serving him with, with devotion and not becoming lazy and worldly and not losing the fire of our love. So that's what the parable is about. And because Jesus taught elsewhere that, that the kingdom of God would be like a king who went on a long journey. It's like, he's never, he's never coming back. He's never going to come back. So what do you have to worry about what the king wants? It's party. Hey, we got all the booze. We got all the food. We got, this is party. Who cares? What are we doing with the king says every day? Every, he's never coming back. So this is another warning like that. Like, don't, don't think that way. Be ready. Be ready. Be watchful. You should always be living in a watchful way. I do not believe that Jesus could come at any second and rapture us out according to what I see in scripture. All right. But I live with readiness to meet the Lord and to be with the Lord. And I don't say, well, he's just delaying his coming because things could unfold very quickly. And before you know it, the coming of the Lord could be here. So good, good logic there. 
good logic in terms of looking at it, but sometimes you can't look at a parable with that degree of logic. All right, Tom, yeah, I got time for this question. Did Jesus promise good gifts to those who ask, Matthew 7, 11, or the Holy Spirit to those who ask, Luke eleven thirteen? 13? Yes, <laughs> yes. In other words, both, both. So notice that there are two different times he taught these things. Matthew 7, 11 is part of the Sermon on the Mount. If your son asked for bread, would you give him a stone? If he asked for fish, would you give him a snake instead? If you then being evil know how to good, good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? Luke 11 is in the context of teaching his disciples about prayer. Same thing. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So number one, the Holy Spirit is one of those good things that God gives. And by the way, I encourage you to ask for the fullness of the Spirit without fear without thinking that you're going to get demonized or some other power is going to... T- no, if you ask your father for bread, he won't give you a stone. You're not asking for a feeling. You're saying, God, fill me to the full with your spirit. Fill me to the full that I can glorify you to the full here in this world. So you ask that without fear, knowing that if his children ask for bread, he won't give them a stone. So either these are just two different teachings, slight variation, two different times, Listen to hundreds of sermons I've preached. I've overlapped on subjects and said similar things a little differently from one to another. That can be the case there. Or it could also be that one writer is emphasizing one thing, the other another. How much more will the Heavenly, Spar- Heavenly Father give you good things, give you the Holy Spirit? So it could both be in the same context of the same speech. But here, because we have it recorded as two separate talks at two separate times, I just assume Jesus said it a little differently one place than another. I compare the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, with the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6. You'll see some parallel teachings, but it's expressed a little differently in each. Be right back. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Line of Fire. Don't, don't. Call, don't dial because I'm not taking calls today. I am answering your Twitter and Facebook questions. Uh, Back over to Twitter, Laura, I was reading through Acts 1 this morning when I came across a statement from Peter that confused me. In verses 16 through 19, he seems to be talking about Judas Iscariot. He said that Judas fell and was split open. The Gospels report that he hung himself. Can you clear this up? Well, when you have different accounts, that were all put together in the same book by editors were passed around to the same people who were in the same circles. They were not unaware of the apparent contradiction. You follow me? In, in other words, it's, it's not like Acts was written in this universe over here and, and say Matthew in this universe over here and there's no connection. No, it was the same community of believers that ultimately shared these writings. And then they were put together in, in, in book form, ultimately, as, as shared writings, or in manuscript form, as, as shared writings. And Luke, of course, writes his gospel as well as, as Acts. So how do we explain these? It could be something as simple as, say, Matthew, or a gospel author, giving us one part of it that he hung himself, and Acts giving us the rest of the story that you know, could well be he hung himself and, and however he hung himself, rope or broke, and uh, he, he fell, was split open, 
In other words, it's, it's not necessarily contradictory. It's just different details of the same account. I would say this, though. If the earliest followers of Jesus found these to be seriously contradictory, if that was the case, then they would have tried to change something, you know, or remove something. But if they recognize, no, no, these are, these are, we trust these accounts as authoritative. And uh, maybe people said, oh, yeah, I know the whole story. Here's how it happened. Otherwise, they said, yeah, sounds like two different accounts, but actually they go hand in hand. And there are various ways to potentially uh, rectify the apparent contradiction. I was talking to Jay Warner Wallace, Wallace, the award-winning detective and now award-winning Christian apologist and author. And we were having a discussion before an apologetics conference. And then I was was rereading some of his material in, in a book where he was being interviewed. And one thing that he mentions is that when you have lots of eyewitnesses talking about an account, if you don't have discrepancies, then you don't trust, trust the eyewitnesses. That if they all say it exactly the same way, and that it's not, this detail is a little different than that detail. Or wait, 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 you're saying this? That sounds very different. And sometimes you can have four different people on street corners, and there's a bad accident, and each of the four gives what sounds like a very different account until you put them all together. It's like, ah, oh, that's how they work because they each saw it or reported it from a different angle. What Peter's repeating, though, seems to be a well-known tradition among the people. Remember, Matthew is there, and, and, and there's no account of, of Matthew saying, well, hang on, I, I think one day I'm going to write something totally different than that. doesn't even make sense logically, does it? All right, let's go back over to Facebook. Uh, Mark, is Nehemia Gordon's pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton factually based or are sources verified? And can he actually make the claim that the way he's pronouncing the name is correct? In my view, no. In my view, no. That he says the pronunci- right pronunciation is Jehovah. No, I don't believe there is any good support for that. Now, having said that, he is, he's not some sensationalist, uh, superficial teacher that I, I mean, I agree with some things he says, but he knows Hebrew well. And, and he does have certain arguments that do need to be addressed. You don't just throw them out. So I, I gave a direct answer, no. Um, and one reason I do that is Nancy reminded me years ago, sometimes when I was doing media interviews, she said, you know, someone will ask you a question, like a yes or no question, and they want your explanation, but you give the explanation first. And, 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 and I'm not really following where you're going. Isn't it better to, to, you know, it seems like you're not being direct or, you know, maybe I can follow you, but others it seems like you're not being direct. So to be direct, I gave the immediate answer. No, I don't believe they're factually correct or well supported. Having said that, uh, this is not like one of these internet myths you just toss out. He does have linguistic arguments, historical arguments, but I believe they all clearly fall short. And that we can still say the best argument for the pronunciation of the divine name is Yahweh and certainly not Yehovah. Okay. So I I don't accept that on numerous lines, nor do I accept this argument that it's a va, not a wa at the end. Again, God has shrouded his name in mystery. And because of that, uh, it's fine that there's even debate about it. And traditional Jews refer to him as Hashem, which is literally the name. That's just the way they refer to God in a very personal way, Hashem, but it's literally the name. And I was, I was at a service a couple months ago. It was wonderful worship, and they were worshiping Yahweh. And then the next song, they were worshiping Jehovah. And I, I don't think God was upset over it. 
So with all respect to Nehemiah Gordon's scholarship, I, I definitely differ with him for quite a number of scholarly reasons about the divine name, the pronunciation of the divine name. Okay, Ray is asking about Exodus twenty two sixteen, Deuteronomy twenty two nineteen. Should this be applied today, or can we, or would it generally be the right thing to do? So let's let's read those verses for you. Exodus twenty two sixteen. Exodus twenty two sixteen says this. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and he has sexual relations with her, he must certainly pay the bridal price for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must pay an amount in silver equal to the bridal price for virgins. And then repeated in Deuteronomy 22. Now, here's, here's what's really important to know. In ancient Israelite culture, and in certain cultures to this day around the world, if a woman loses her virginity, if she's raped, if she's seduced, she loses her virginity. It, she is now considered unclean, off limits to others. So no man wants to marry her. So it was punishing the man to say, you have to marry her and you can never divorce her all the days of your life. Okay. And, and this is documented to this day in, in many cultures around the world that, that that's the punishment. I remember writing about it some years ago and finding cultures in Africa where it was, it was the punishment or in, in other countries where it was the punishment. So you said it's punishing the woman. No, it's guaranteeing the woman you're going to have a husband and, and he can never divorce you. And in those cultures, that's far more important than her just saying, hey, I'm going my way. Now, again, it would have be, be up to the father to agree to that. Otherwise, the fine would have to be paid. So your question then, given that a person repented, the possible partner is suitable, avoiding two wrongs, and the person seeks a godly solution. So your question then is, if a man rapes a woman, obviously going to go to jail for that. Let's say he rapes a woman or he seduces her. And now, okay, let's say he seduces her. They both sin. She was seduced by him, but she agreed. They both sin. And now he is wondering, does that mean I should marry her? Uh, let's say they're both drunk and they sinned and come to their senses. And they're absolutely not a match in any way, shape, size, or form. Let's say he's a believer who was in a backslidden state. She's totally hostile to the gospel. Uh, no, I, I do not believe this would apply. This, this is something for which there must be repentance, asking God to forgive and cleanse. And, and again, in our society, it would be different than saying he has to marry her and can never divorce her the rest of her life. Uh, however, uh, we must not take these things lightly. In other words, in our society, it's so common for there to be sexual promiscuity. Now, interestingly, Interestingly, this younger generation grew up in broken homes and they're putting off marriage or not marrying at all. And, and there's even a decrease in sexual activity. Is it because they got burned out in promiscuity? Is it because the prevalence of pornography? Is it because of broken homes and negative effects that has? Those, those are lots of open questions right now. But uh, we don't want to trivialize sex outside of wedlock. We don't want to trivialize fornication. Ah, no big deal. Just move on. This is meant to be something confined to the relationship between a husband and wife for life. But again, to repeat, fornication can be forgiven and there's no necessity to marry the person that you fornicated with, especially if it was something rash and there's no relationship there and you are clearly not compatible in any way. 
and one of you wants to get right and follow the Lord, and the other has no desire to. But these things should be taken seriously, and this reminds us of the degree that it was taken seriously in the ancient world. Okay, <clears throat> just a, a quick note, a quick note for you. Don't be afraid of asking questions to the Lord. Yeah, I'm, I'm soliciting questions, so by all means, ask me where I can help you. But, but don't be afraid of saying, God, I'm really, I don't understand that verse at all. Father, I, I don't get that, but that baffles me. I'm, I'm really unclear on it. Don't, don't be afraid to ask him questions. Don't be afraid to say, God, I, I have a problem with that. It seems what, what you commanded in the Old Testament, it, it seems cruel. I, I, Lord, you know I love you, but I don't understand that. I don't get it. It's fine to ask him. Father, I, I, I really thought we were praying in faith and this person wasn't healed. I, I don't understand it. I know you're faithful or I've got something wrong. Show me. It's really good to have those kind of dialogues and open this with it. Like, he knows anyway. He knows some of us are like, oh, I have to I have to speak in faith. Listen, you don't need to put up a front when it comes to God. You don't need to put up a show when it comes to God. He knows anyway. So be open with him. Have honest talks, heart to heart. You say, I, I find it hard to pray. Well, get in your car and just have a talk with the Lord. It's like, hey, could we just drive together for a little while here? As if he's there, have a talk with him. Pick up your phone. All right, Lord, I'd like to have a little talk. Whatever gets you in the mind frame, frame of mind to realize I'm having a reverent talk with my father and pour out your heart and, and he'll, he'll manifest his nearness to you. He'll, he'll help you over time. He'll either satisfy that need or answer the question or just reveal himself. 